I'm Bob Cudmore, and this is the Historian's Podcast. We're going to do episode 453, the last highlights edition of the year 2022, where we excerpt uh, portions of other interviews in uh, hopes of broadening your uh, prospects as far as podcasts are concerned. On this particular program, we're going to have an excerpt about the Marquis de Lafayette, Gilbert de Mottier, the Marquis de Lafayette. We'll also talk about the history of glaciers. We'll talk about what it's like to become blind and know that you're going to become blind when you reach a, a certain age. And uh, we begin with an excerpt from a podcast which we did with a, a well-known a writer on military topics, a man named Bruce Henderson. And Bruce Henderson has uh, written a book on the secret role of Japanese Americans who fought in the Pacific in World War II. Here's Bruce Henderson. I'm a nonfiction writer, uh, a military historian, and I've done uh, a number of books on World War II and specifically the Pacific Theater but I came across this story by, rather by happenstance when I was at the archives four years ago researching my, my previous book called Sons and Soldiers about the Jewish Ritchie boys who were trained and sent over to Europe as uh, German language interrogators and interpreters. And I, I, had, I had heard that the Japanese uh, Americans had fought in Europe for the famous 442nd as infantrymen. Uh, against the Germans, but I did not know that there were a group of almost 4,000 of them who were sent to the Pacific in the war against their parents' homeland, Japan. And I thought that would be an interesting story to tell, to look at what kind of conflicts they had and what their motivations were. And that's what I set out to do. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore, Bruce Henderson with us. Again, his book is called Bridge to the Sun, The Secret Role of the Japanese Americans Who Fought in the Pacific in World War II. So your work on the American Jews who went to Germany kind of preceded uh, looking at the uh, Japanese who were impressed into the war. I shouldn't say impressed, that's a nasty word, Um, but who served in the American uh, military to uh, be translators uh, in the the Pacific theater. Why did uh, it take so long? The publicity for the book talks about it's now it can be told or this and that. What what, what was the holdup here? Why wasn't this... uh, brought out earlier. In the case of the Japanese Americans who were trained by the Army's military intelligence service during the war, it was simply a matter of not wanting the enemy, the the Japanese Army, uh, in the Pacific to know that we had the language capability uh, in that theater. The, The Japanese of that era were rather arrogant uh, that their their language was not going to be easily understood by Westerners, particularly the, the writing and, and reading, you know, of the characters, and there are tens of thousands of their characters that go into the, the writing of Japanese, and so they were rather lax in 
uh, in their communications in the battlefield. Uh, uh, not that they didn't have war codes, they did, but uh, they were very relaxed in terms of not only talking, but at times, I mean, what they would leave behind on the battlefield. For example, every Japanese soldier, uh, unlike the GIs who were told they could not keep uh, diaries for, for the good reason that if they get caught, you know, if they get captured and uh, the enemy ha um, uh, gets that kind of material that they could learn a lot about uh, the individual units in the field. But the Japanese soldiers were under no prohibition. They most, for the most part, they kept their personal diaries with them. So these were being found on the battlefields and were being brought in. And with these teams of uh, Japanese Americans or Nisei, uh, first generation American born uh, Japanese, uh, they were able to do an immediate um, uh, interpretation of, of you know what they were uh, what they possibly. Uh, tactical and strategical intelligence that would be, you know, enormously helpful not only in winning the next battle over the hill, but in saving American lives. So that's why it was secret then. Now it stayed secret for a really long time because it's military intelligence, and there was uh, it was simply not declassified for for many years, probably forty or fifty years after the war. But even then, nobody rushed in to find out about, because there are only about 4,000 of these guys, and they served in very small 10-man teams assigned to larger units. And uh, there was kind of a story that was, that was lost, if you will, in the midst of history. That's Bruce Henderson, who wrote about the Japanese in the Pacific Theater in World War II. Our next excerpt, is from episode 449, and the guest is Bob Gumson, who lives in Albany now, but he's originally uh, from a section of Brooklyn called Canarsie. In fact, the, his book is titled From Canarsie, Brooklyn, with Love, Music, and Mischief in Blind Sight. Should have put the in blind sight first. That's actually how he starts the title to his memoir, uh, talking about how he became blind. Uh, Bob Gumson uh, became blind when he was a child, and uh, there's a story connected to it, and he talks about it in this excerpt. This is Bob Gumson. I wrote my memoir in 2021. It's called In Blind Sight from Canarsie, Brooklyn, with love, music, and mischief. I live in Albany. I'm here today to talk with Bob about my life. That's described in my book. It is available on Amazon.com and Kindle and in paperback. And if you're in the Albany area, you can look up my name, Bob Gumson. I'll be glad to sign a copy I have on hand. I worked in the not-for-profit field as a state employee managing a lot of programs that served the rights of people with disabilities, and my, I myself have been blind since childhood. Born in the mid-1950s, Bob Gumson, as he said, grew up in Canarsie, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. As a young boy, uh, Bob loved to take part in sports and games with his neighborhood friends, 
Following a routine kindergarten eye exam, Bob and his family learned that he had a progressive eye disease that would render him completely blind by the time he reached his early teens. Uh, Bob's uh, disability would present many challenges, but it never prevented him uh, from doing exciting and purposeful things. Bob Gumson today lives in Albany, as he said, author of a memoir in blind sight from Canarsie, Brooklyn, with Love Music and Mischief, published in 2021. I don't remember this. Uh, I'm, I'm somewhat older than you are, but I don't remember this uh, test they gave you in kindergarten. Do you remember the actual test? I kind of do. They, they had a screen up and a projector, and it would show the letter E on all different angles, on its side, backwards, um, in, in, in capital, and then in smaller print. And as you went down this chart, as it would, an eye chart, you'd have to say, I see, you know, E to the right, E upside down. And that's how they would tell, as you went down the chart, how far your distance vision was. In fact, you said you had quite a parade of doctors from then on in your, in your youth. Oh, yes. My family exhausted every resource known to man. That I, was, uh, I went through probably 30 to 40 different doctor visits from, uh, all the way from New York, where we lived, down to Baltimore, Maryland, to the John Hopkins uh, hospital, um, every expert, and everybody had a slightly different opinion. And then one day, one doctor in New York City finally confronted my parents and, and me. I guess I was only a little boy, but they, I heard them say that I probably lose my vision over time. Now, what did you think about that, uh, or, or as you remember it today? Back then, I didn't know what to think. It seemed kind of scary a little bit, but it wasn't, I didn't have the loss, so I was still seeing things. So it kind of was like hard to put my head around it and totally imagine what life could be like. I guess as time went on, the fears that my parents had about what life could be or the unknowns of what life could be started to manifest in me a little bit because I, I, I heard their fears, I understood from their emotions, their, their, their ways of treating me, um, maybe with, you could say, with kid gloves at times. As time went on, those gloves came off and they kind of gave me, and well, they took an understanding of vision loss, they kind of t- uh, decided um, to teach me how to be very independent but early on I'd hold hands more than probably other kids hold their elbow more than other kids they'd always be watchful over me uh, that's Bob Gumson uh, from his book in blind sight from Canarsie Brooklyn with love music and mischief you can support the historians podcast by going to our website bobcudmore.com looking for the GoFundMe link, and you can make a donation there and also find out how you can donate online. 
I'm Bob Cudmore, and this is the Historian's Podcast. We say hello to Dave Green. I don't know if I ever have brought up this building to you. I've done a column about it recently because it's been in the news. If you have, does the do the words Guy Park Manor have any kind of a meaning to you? I've I've certainly heard you mention it many times uh, over the years. Is is it the building that that flooded out about ten years ago? It is, and it's been vacant ever since. I mean, it's the strangest thing in a way. Um, there was a terrible thing that happened there. One of the floods caused by hurricanes, or actually two, a uh, hurricane and a tropical storm. A hurricane Irene, tropical storm Lee, really did a number on Guy Park Manor. At the time, the manor was home to the Walter Elwood Museum, and a lot of their collection was pretty much ruined. And after the, the, the disaster, after the flooding, they... Um, relocated again. The Elwood Museum, it seems, is always looking for a place to go. And they now uh, are headquartered in some of the old mill buildings in Amsterdam, which have the advantage of being up on higher ground. But Guy Park Manor recently got an award, I guess you'd say, or, you know, a state agency or the state agency that uh, oversees uh, Guy Park Manor, um, um, put, is putting up $36 million for more restoration, which they say will make it um, possible to use Guy Park Manor uh, in the future. The manor was the first house built in what became Amsterdam, New York. It's in within the confines of the city limits, in the modern day, the building is situated on the Mohawk River slash Barge Canal, right next to one of the canal locks and right next to one of the uh, canal movable dams. And it's been that way since the early 1900s. But originally, Guy Park Manor was built by a guy who I'm always talking about, Dave, I sometimes think you must get sick of hearing about Sir William Johnson, but he has to do with this story. All right. Uh, well, we're, we're interested. Keep going, Rob. Well, he, he built Guy Park Manor for his nephew, whose name was Guy. That's where the guy comes from. And Guy, nephew of Sir William Johnson, had come to America. He was in, originally from Ireland, as was... Uh, Sir William Johnson, uh, and he wanted to seek out his uncle, which he did, uh, his uncle being Sir William Johnson. And he also sought out his uncle's daughter, Polly, uh, Polly Johnson. And Guy and Polly got married, and they needed a place to live, so Sir William built them this mansion. Um, it was, uh, I think, built in the 1760s, something like that. It was built after um, Sir William had uh, built his first stone mansion in Fort Johnson, which is generally called Old Fort Johnson. Well, 
kind of all hell broke loose after they built Guy Park Manor. Within a couple of years, you know, or maybe couples is too too few, but the the Polly and Guy Johnson only lived there a few years when the revolution, the American Revolution, kind of became hot stuff, and uh, they had to flee. They they fled uh, to Canada. Previously, before the war started, Sir William Johnson died. The family patriarch died. So Guy Johnson, along with John Johnson, another son of uh, Sir William Johnson, who uh, took over the old Fort Johnson after uh, the it, it, his um, father died, they decamped to Canada, but that didn't mean they stayed there during the Revolution. Both Guy and John and others, like Joseph Brandt and so forth, were involved in raids on uh, the rebel settlers, if you will, uh, in the Mohawk Valley. And now a story about a glacier. In fact, a story about glaciers in general and the history of uh, glaciers. We're joined by Anita Sanchez on episode 451 of the Historian's Podcast, who is a science writer. I've worked with her in the past. She lives in upstate New York, as do I. But her latest book is about glaciers. Uh, the book is called Meltdown, Discover Earth's Irreplaceable Glaciers and Learn What You Can Do to Save Them. Hi, my name is Anita Sanchez. I'm the author of uh, books for kids, mostly, on um, nature and science and the environment. A few years ago, I took a trip to Iceland, and I was lucky enough to walk on a glacier. And it was just an amazing experience. It isn't like just standing on a big pile of snow. A glacier is actually moving. It makes noise. It changes. And when I walked up the side of it, there was this sense of climbing onto the, the back of a, a big frozen animal or something. It was beautiful, and also I found out that glaciers are an endangered species. As our mm. climate is changing, glaciers are melting. Our world is changing um, because of human-caused pollution, and we need to do something about it. So I've written a book called Meltdown, and it's for young people ages 0, 10 and up, but I hope really anyone can enjoy it of any age. It talks about glaciers and why we should care about them, even if we've mm -hmm. never seen one or mm -hmm. live far away from them. That's really a powerful image that you uh, give us about walking on the glacier. Uh, the book is called Meltdown, Discover Earth's Irreplaceable Glaciers and Learn What You Can Do to Save Them. Uh, Anita Sanchez uh, drives home the importance of protecting uh, glaciers as vital resources. The book is illustrated by Lily Padula. Uh, she illustrates it with photos or with, uh, with drawings? Beautiful drawings. Absolutely gorgeous, dramatic sketches of glaciers, of crevasses, which are you know, the deep cracks in glaciers that are hundreds of feet deep sometimes, and also of the wildlife. And because it's a book aimed at younger readers, I made a, a focus of the wildlife um, that 
live on glaciers or near glaciers and depend on them because as the glaciers melt, these animals are becoming in trouble. And again, we need to take action to help save them. You traveled to Iceland to walk on your glacier, and you and I both live in upstate New York. Do we have a glacier around here we can walk on? No, but I did travel in the United States to, um, we do have many glaciers in the States, mostly in national parks, mostly out west. So I went to uh, Cascades uh, National Park, which is in Washington State, and explored the glaciers there. And so most of, actually most of the book is uh, based on American glaciers. I discovered that one of the main glaciologists in the United States is a man named Dr. Maury Pelto. And so I thought I was going to have to go out to Washington because he does his research in Washington State. But it turns out he lives about an hour away from me in Massachusetts. So mm-hmm. I just just could drive over to Massachusetts and talk with him um, in person several times about his research. Glaciers have been around for a long, 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 long time, right? I mean, uh, hundreds of years? Uh, in some cases, millions of years. I mean, they, they, they vary. Um, there are ones in the Cascades that are, yeah, maybe 100, 200 years old. But um, the oldest glacier they found is in Antarctica, and it's, you know, it, it goes back way more than a million years. It's just this enormous, thick blanket of ice that's covering the, uh, the South Pole, basically. My, my guess would be that Antarctica would have the kind of the king of the glaciers as far as Earth is concerned. Do they? Right. Right. There's actually two kinds of glaciers. There's what they call continental glaciers, which covers a good deal of Antarctica. So sort of think of that as pancake batter. If you pour pancake batter onto a frying pan, the pancake batter slowly spreads out and moves. And so that's what a continental glacier is like. Then there's what they call mountain glaciers or alpine glaciers. And they're more like rivers. And they're the more common ones that, you know, you could see in a, a national park, like in Glacier National Park. It's like a river, of a frozen river moving down through the mountain. Let's start with episode 452 and Jim Kaplan. Jim Kaplan, uh, tell us about uh, Lafayette. Who was he? Why was he important both in France and what became the United States? Well, Lafayette, in many respects, has been one of the leading promoters of democracy, both in the United States and in France. And he's a very important historical figure, uh, I think, today on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, At the time of his life, he was very important in the American Revolution. uh, And at one point in his early 20s, held a very important position in France as an advisor to King Louis XVI and also as a proponent of a kind of a constitutional monarchy in France, which obviously didn't uh, work out after the uh, uh, French Revolution and the, uh, uh, the Jacobins, the more radical groups, took over. Um, but let me start with his uh, uh, how he became involved in the United States and was really a Uh, had a father-son relationship with George Washington. His father had been killed when he was two in the Battle of Minden, which was the Thirty Years' War, 
the end of the Thirty Years' War in England, uh, in France rather, and in uh, and essentially the English had greatly defeated the French armies in that uh, war. So England was pr- the predominant power in in Europe uh, at the time, and the French had a particularly upper-class Frenchmen like uh, noblemen like Lafayette were itching, you might say, to get revenge for their defeats in the 1760s. Uh, he went to a, one of the leading military academies where one of his classmates was Louis Sixteenth. So when the American Revolution broke out, there were many Frenchmen who were very eager to fight on the American side against the British. Uh, Lafayette was somewhat unusual in that he had the resources. His wife was uh, connected to one of the richest families in France and closest to the French monarchy. Uh, So there was not just Lafayette's personal wealth, but also his wife's wealth, which he inherited at a very young age because of the death of his father. Uh, And he he bought a ship with his own money to bring a small group over to the United States to fight in the American army. Uh, the Continental Army. Now, the Continental Army and George Washington were kind of leery of foreign fighters coming over, foreign adventurers who wanted to uh, uh, help out the American cause because they had, uh, many of them felt they had a, a many of them had ulterior motives. But Lafayette was so well connected. Government. He was quite a young guy. He was in his late teens. He was told by uh, American representatives in France, Benjamin Franklin, Silas Dean. Hey, you know, don't 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 uh, insult this guy. We really need, and we're going to need French help. And his family is in a position to really help us. So uh, treat him with great respect, and and uh, uh, you know whatever you could do for him. Hopefully, make sure that nothing happens to him because if he's killed in the American Revolution, that's that's going to be a disastrous uh, coup for the British. So uh, Washington put him on his personal staff, which had a number of young people, including Alexander Hamilton, with whom he was a close friend until Hamilton's death in 1804, uh, and uh, Washington and uh, gave him the symbolic title of Major General uh, and a Major General Sash, which would indicate he was a Major General, even though he wasn't really supposed to do anything. You know, they were hopeful, although he did go to meetings on the, on the you know, they were planning the battles, and uh, in uh, 1777, uh, there was a, a disastrous battle, or 77, uh, in uh, uh, 1776, uh, at the Battle of Brandywine. The, the British had won the Battle of New York, and then they uh, were uh, uh, attempting to uh, take over. Uh, they surrounded Philadelphia. They attacked Philadelphia, which was the rebel capital, and uh Washington was again completely outmaneuvered. So in the high heat of this very disastrous battle for the American side, uh, the confusion, uh, they saw that the right line of the American side under General Sullivan was completely collapsing, and it looked like an entire rout. So what happened was uh, Washington got on his horse, a young guy, and ran out, said, I'm going to take care of this, and he ran out to the to the American side, wearing his Major General sash, saying, well, I'm a Major General from Washington's staff, and you guys better form a line, and let's let's do an orderly retreat. General Sullivan and most of the American commanders were clueless, but Washington, immediately, uh, Lafayette, immediately took charge. 
nobody knew who he was, even though he was, uh, you know, his late teens. They said, oh, geez, if this guy's from Washington staff, we need more of them. And he essentially saved hundreds of American lives by organizing an orderly retreat. That's Jim Kaplan with a brief look at the life of the Marquis de Lafayette. It's a story he's also told to the New York Almanac put out by John Warren. This has been our Highlights episode, last one of uh, 2022. In addition to Jim Kaplan talking about Lafayette, we've also talked about the War in the Pacific Theater, World War II, between Japan and America. Bob Gumson, uh, his memoir, In Blind Sight. Anita Sanchez on the history of glaciers in the world. And uh, that's it. Oh, no, the, we had one more. Amsterdam's Guy Park Manor, a historic building. It's the oldest building in Amsterdam, New York. And my name is Bob Cudmore. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast.